0: The Crystal Shard Chapter 26 Rites of Victory Wolfgar leaned back in his chair at the head of the main table in the hastily constructed mead hall, his foot tapping nervously at the long delays necessitated by the demands of proper tradition. He felt that his people should already be on the move but it was the restoration of the traditional ceremonies and celebrations that had immediately separated and placed him above the tyrant Hefstag in the eyes of the skeptical and ever-suspicious barbarians. Wolfgar, after all, had walked into their midst after a five-year absence and challenged their long-standing king. One day later, he'd won the crown, and the day after that, he'd been coronated King Wolfgar of the tribe of the elk. And he was determined that his reign— short though he intended it to be, would not be marked by the threats and bullying tactics of his predecessors. He would ask the warriors of the assembled tribes to follow him into battle, not command them, for he knew that a barbarian warrior was a man driven almost exclusively by fierce pride. Stripped of their dignity, as Hefsteg had done, by refusing to honor the sovereignty of each individual king, the tribesmen were no better in battle than ordinary men. Wolfgar knew that they would need to regain their proud edge if they were to have any chance at all against the wizard's overwhelming numbers. Thus, Hengarot, the Mead Hall, had been raised, and the challenge of the song initiated for the first time in nearly five years. It was a short, happy time of good-natured competition between tribes who had been suffocated under Hefstag's unrelenting domination. The decision to raise the Deerskin Hall had been difficult for Wolfgar, Assuming that he still had the time before Kessel's army struck, he had weighed the benefits of regaining tradition against the pressing need of haste. He had only hoped that in the frenzy of pre-battle preparations, Kessel would overlook the absence of the barbarian king, Hefstag. If the wizard was at all sharp, it wasn't likely. Now he waited quietly and patiently, watching the fires return to the eyes of the tribesmen. Like old times? Revjack asked sitting next to him. Good times, Wolfgar responded. Satisfied, Revjak leaned back against the tense deerskin wall, granting the new chief the solitude he obviously desired, and Wolfgar resumed his wait, seeking the best moment to unveil his proposition. At the far end of the hall, an axe-throwing competition was beginning. Similar to the tactics Hepstag and Bayorg had used to seal a pact between the tribes at the last hangarot, The challenge was to hurl an axe from as great a distance as possible and sink it deeply enough into a keg of mead to open a hole. The number of mugs that could be filled from the effort within a specified count determined the success of the throw. Wolfgar saw his chance. He leaped from his stool and demanded, by rights of being the host, the first throw. The man who had been selected to judge the challenge acknowledged Wolfgar's right and invited him to come down to the first selected distance. "'From here,' "'Wulfgar said, hoisting Aegis' fang to his shoulder. "'Murmurs of disbelief and excitement arose from around the corners of the hall. "'The use of a warhammer in such a challenge was unprecedented, "'but none complained or cited rules. "'Every man who had heard the tales but not witnessed firsthand "'the splitting of Hefsteg's great axe was anxious to see the weapon in action. "'A keg of meat was placed upon a stool at the back end of the hall. "'Another behind it,' Wolfgar demanded.' and another behind that. His concentration narrowed on the task at hand, and he didn't take the time to sort out the whispers he heard all around him. The kegs were readied, and the crowds backed out of the young king's line of sight. Wolfgar grasped Aegis Fang tightly in his hands and sucked in a great breath, holding it in to keep himself steady. The unbelieving onlookers watched in amazement as the new king exploded into movement, hurling the mighty hammer with a fluid motion and strength unmatched among their ranks. Aegis Fang tumbled head over handle, the length of a long haul, blasting through the first keg and then the second and beyond, taking out not only the three targets and their stools, but continuing on to tear a hole in the back of the mead hall. The closest warriors hurried to the opening to watch the remainder of its flight, but the hammer had disappeared into the night. They started out to retrieve it. But Wolfgar stopped them. He sprang onto the table, lifting his arms before him. Hear me, warriors of the northern plains, he cried, their mouths already agape at the unprecedented feat. Some fell to their knees when Aegis Fang suddenly reappeared in the young king's hands. I am Wolfgar, son of Bjornagar, the king of the tribe of the Elk. Yet I speak to you now, not as your king, but as a kindred warrior, horrified at the dishonor Hefstag tried to place upon us all. Spurred on by the knowledge that he had gained their attention and respect, and by the confirmation that his assumptions of their true desires had not been in error, Wolfgar seized the moment. These people had cried out for deliverance from the tyrannical reign of the One-Eyed King, and, beaten almost to extinction in their last campaign— and now about to fight beside goblins and giants, they longed for a hero to gain them back their lost pride. I am the dragon slayer, he continued, and by the right of victory, I possess the treasures of icing death. Again, the private conversations interrupted him, for the now unguarded treasure had become the subject of debate. Wolfgar let them continue their gossip for a long moment to heighten their interest in the dragon's gold. When they finally quieted, he went on. The tribes of the tundra do not fight in a common cause with goblins and giants, he decreed to rouse shouts of approval. We fight against them! The crowd suddenly hushed. A guard rushed into the tent but did not dare interrupt the new king. I leave with the dawn for ten towns, Wolfgar stated. I shall battle against the wizard Kessel and the foul horde he has pulled from the holes of the spine of the world. The crowd did not respond. They accepted the notion of battle against Kessel eagerly, but the thought of returning to ten towns to help the people who had nearly destroyed them five years before had never occurred to them. But the guard now intervened. I fear that your quest shall be in vain, young king, he said. Wolfgar turned a distressed eye upon the man, guessing the news he bore. The smoke clouds from great fires are even now rising above the southern plain. Wolfgar considered the distressing news. he thought that he would have more time. Then I shall leave tonight, he roared at the stunned assembly. Come with me, my friends, my fellow warriors of the north. I shall show you the path to the lost glories of our past. The crowd seemed torn and uncertain. Wolfgar played his final card. To any man who will go with me, or to his surviving kin if he should fall, I offer an equal share of the dragon's treasure. He'd swept in like a mighty squall off the sea of moving ice. He'd captured the imagination and heart of every barbarian warrior and had promised them a return to the wealth and glory of their brightest days. That very night, Wolfgar's mercenary army charged out of their encampment and thundered across the open plain. Not a single man remained behind. Chapter 27. The Clock of Doom. Bremen was torched at dawn. The people of the small, unwalled village had known better than to stand and fight when the wave of monsters rolled across the Shane River. They put up token resistance at the ford, firing a few bursts of arrows at the League goblins just to slow the ranks long enough for the heaviest and slowest ships to clear the harbor and reach the safety of Mare Dalden. The archers then fled back to the docks and followed their fellow townsmen. When the goblins finally entered the city, they found it completely deserted they watched angrily as the sailing ships moved back toward the east to join the flotilla of Targos and Termalane. Bremen was too far out of the way to be of any use to Akar Kessel. So, unlike the city of Termalane, which had been converted into a camp, this city was burned to the ground. The people on the lake, the newest in the long line of homeless victims of Kessel's wanton destruction, watched helplessly as their homes fell in smoldering splinters. From the wall of Bryn Shander, Cassius and Regis watched too. He has made yet another mistake, Cassius told the halfling. How so? Kessel has backed the people of Targos and Termalane, Kerkonig and Cardinable, and now Bremen into a corner, Cassius explained. They have nowhere to go now. Their only hope lies in victory. Not much of a hope, Regis remarked. You have seen what the tower can do, and even without it, Kessel's army could destroy us all. As he said, he holds every advantage. Perhaps, Cassius conceded, the wizard believes that he is invincible, that much is certain, and that is his mistake, my friend. The meekest of animals will fight bravely when it's backed against a wall, for it has nothing left to lose.' A poor man is more deadly than a rich man because he puts less value on his own life, and a man stranded homeless on the frozen steps, when the first winds of winter already beginning to blow is a formidable enemy indeed. Fear not, little friend, Cassius continued. At our council this morning, we shall find a way to exploit the wizard's weaknesses. Regis nodded unable to dispute the spokesman's simple logic and unwilling to refute his optimism. Still, as he scanned the deep ranks of goblins and orcs that surrounded the city, the halfling held out little hope. He looked northward where the dust had finally settled on the Dwarven Valley. Bruner's climb was no more, having toppled with the rest of the cliff face when the dwarves closed up their caverns. "'Open a door for me, Bruner,' Regis whispered absently. "'Please,' let me in. Coincidentally, Bruner and his clan were, at that very moment, discussing the feasibility of opening a door to their tunnels, but not to let anyone in. Soon after their smashing success against the ogres and goblins on the ledges outside their mines, the fighting Longbeards had realized that they could not sit idly by while the orcs and goblins and even worse monsters destroyed the world around them. They were eager to take a second shot at Kessel. In their underground womb, they had no idea if Bryn Shander was still standing or if Kessel's army had already rolled over the Ten Towns, but they could hear the sounds of an encampment above the southernmost sections of their huge complex. Brunner was the one who had proposed the idea of its second battle, mainly because of his own anger at the imminent loss of his closest non-Dwarven friends. Shortly after the goblins that had escaped the tunnel collapses had been cut down, the leader of the clan from Mithril Hall gathered the whole of his people around him. "'Send someone to the farthest ends of the tunnels,' he instructed. "'Find out where the dogs will do their sleeping.' That night, the sounds of the marching monsters became obvious far in the south, under the fields surrounding Bryn Shander. The industrious dwarves immediately set about reconditioning the little-used tunnels that ran in that direction, and when they'd gotten under the army, they dug ten separate upward shafts, stopping slightly shy of the surface.' A special gleam had returned to their eyes, the sparkle of a dwarf who knows that he's about to chop off a few goblin heads. Bruner's devious plan had endless potential for revenge and minimal risk. With five minutes notice, they could complete their new exits. Less than a minute after that, their entire force would be up in the middle of Kessel's sleeping army. The meeting that Cassius had labeled a council was truly more of a forum where the spokesman from Bryn Shander could unveil his first retaliatory strategies. Yet, none of the gathered leaders, even Glenn Sather, the only other spokesman in attendance, protested in the least. Cassius had studied every aspect of the entrenched goblin army and the wizard with meticulous attention to detail. The spokesman had outlined a layout of the entire force, detailing the most potentially explosive rivalries among the goblin and orc ranks, and his best estimates about the length of time it would take for the inner fighting to sufficiently weaken the army. Everyone in attendance was agreed, though, that the cornerstone holding the siege together was Krishal Tirith. The awesome power of the crystalline structure would cow even the most disruptive orcs into unquestioning obedience. Yet the limits of that power, as Cassius saw, were the real issue. Why was Kessel so insistent on an immediate surrender? The spokesman reasoned. He could let us sit under the stress of a siege for a few days to soften our resistance. The others agreed with the logic of Cassius's line of thinking, but had no answers for him. Perhaps Kessel does not command as strong a hold over his charges as we believe, Cassius himself proposed. Might it be that the wizard fears his army will disintegrate around him if stalled for any length of time? It might, replied Glen Sather of East Haven. Or maybe Akkar Kessel simply perceives the strength of his advantage and knows that we have no choice but to comply. Do you perhaps confuse confidence with concern? Cassius paused for a moment to reflect on the question. A point well taken, he said at length yet immaterial to our plans. Glensather and several others cocked a curious eye at the spokesman. "'We must assume the latter,' Cassius explained. "'If the wizard is truly in absolute control of the gathered army, then anything we might attempt shall prove futile in any case. Therefore, we must act on the assumption that Kessel's impatience reveals well-founded concern.' I do not perceive the wizard as an exceptional strategist. He has embarked on a path of destruction that he assumed would cow us into submission, yet, which, in reality, has actually strengthened the resolve of many of our people to fight to the last. Long standing rivalries between several of the towns, bitterness to a wise leader of an invading force would surely have twisted it into an excellent advantage, have been mended by Kessel's blatant disregard of finesse and his displays of outrageous brutality. Cassius knew by the attentive looks he was receiving that he was gaining support from every corner. He was trying to accomplish two things in this meeting, to convince the others to go along with the gamble he was about to unveil, and to lift their outlook and give them some shred of hope. Our people are out there, he said, sweeping his arm in a wide arc. On Mayor Dolden and Lactinneshire. The fleets have gathered, awaiting some sign from Bryn Shander that we shall support them. The people of Goodmead and Dugan's Hole do likewise on the southern lake, fully armed and knowing full well that in this struggle there's nothing left at all for any survivors if we are not victorious. He leaned forward over the table, alternately catching and holding the gaze of each man seated before him and concluded grimly, No homes. No hope for our wives. No hope for our children. Nowhere left to run. Cassius continued to rally the others around him and was soon backed by Glenn Sather, who had guessed at the spokesman's goal of increasing morale and recognized the value of it. Cassius searched for the most opportune moment, when the majority of the assembled leaders had replaced their frowns of despair with a determined grimace of survival, he put forth his daring plan. "'Gessel has demanded an emissary,' he said, "'and so we must deliver one.' "'You or I would seem the most obvious choice,' Glenn Sather intervened. "'Which shall it be?' A wry smile spread across Cassius's face. "'Neither,' he replied." One of us would be the obvious choice if we intended to go along with Kessel's demands. But we have one other option. He turned his gaze squarely upon Regis. The halfling squirmed uncomfortably, half-guessing what the spokesman had in mind. There is one among us who has attained an almost legendary reputation for his considerable abilities of persuasion— Perhaps his charismatic appeal shall win us some valuable time in our dealings with the wizard. Regis felt ill. He had often wondered when the ruby pendant was going to get him into trouble too deep to climb out of. Several other people eyed Regis now, apparently intrigued by the potential of Cassius's suggestion. The stories of the halfling's charm and persuasive ability and the accusation that Kemp had made at the council a few weeks earlier had been told and retold a thousand times in every one of the towns, each storyteller typically enhancing and exaggerating the tales to increase his own importance. Though Regis hadn't been thrilled with the losing of the power of his secret, people seldom looked at him straight in the eye any more. He had come to enjoy a certain degree of fame. He hadn't considered the possible negative effects of having so many people look up to him. Let the halfling, the former spokesman from Lonelywood, Represent us in Akkar Kessel's court, Cassius declared to the nearly unanimous approval of the assembly. Perhaps our small friend will be able to convince the wizard of the error of his evil ways. You are mistaken, Regis protested. They are only rumors. Ah, humility, Cassius interrupted, is a fine trait, good halfling and all gathered here appreciate the sincerity of your self-doubts, and appreciate even more so your willingness to pit your talents against Kessel in the face of these self-doubts. Regis closed his eyes and did not reply, knowing that the notion would surely pass whether he approved it or not. It did, without a single dissenting vote. The cornered people were quite willing to grab at any possible sliver of hope they could find, Cassius moved quickly to wrap up the council, for he believed that all other matters—problems of overcrowding and food hoarding—were of little importance at this time. If Regis failed, every other inconvenience would become immaterial. Regis remained silent. He only attended the council to lend support to his spokesman friends. When he took his seat at the table, he had no intentions of even actively participating in the discussions, let alone becoming the focal point of the defense plan. And so the meeting adjourned. Cassius and Glenn Sather exchanged knowing winks for success, for everyone left the room feeling a little bit more optimistic. Cassius held Regis back when he moved to leave with the others. The spokesman from Brynchander shut the door behind the last of them, desiring a private briefing with the principal character for the first stages of his plan. You could have spoken to me about all of this first! Regis grumbled at the spokesman's back as soon as the door was closed. It seems only right that I should have been given the opportunity to make a decision in this matter. Cassius wore a grim visage as he turned to face the halfling. What choice do any of us have? he asked. At least this way we've given them all some hope. You overestimate me, Regis protested. Perhaps you underestimate yourself. Cassius said, though the halfling realized that Cassius would not look back away from the plan that he'd set into motion. The spokesman's confidence relayed an altruistic spirit to Regis that was genuinely comforting. Let us pray for both our sakes that the latter is the truth, Cassius continued, moving to his seat at the table. But I truly believe this to be the case. I have faith in you, even if you do not, I remember well what you did to spokesman Kemp at the council five years ago, though it took his own declaration that he had been tricked to get some realization of the truth of the situation. A masterful job of persuasion, Regis of Lonelywood, and more so because it held its secret for so long. Regis blushed and conceded the point. And if you can deal with the stubborn likes of Kemp of Targos, you should find Akar Kessel easy prey. ''I agree with your perceptions of Kessel as something less than a man of inner strength,'' said Regis. ''But wizards have a way of uncovering wizard-like tricks, and you forget the demon. I would not even attempt to deceive one of its kind.'' ''Let us hope that you shall not have to deal with that one,'' Cassius agreed with a visible shudder. ''Yet I feel that you must go to the tower and try to dissuade the wizard,'' "'If we cannot somehow hold the gathering army at bay "'until its own inner turmoil becomes our ally, "'then we are surely doomed. "'Believe me, as I am your friend, "'that I would not ask you to journey into such peril "'if I saw any other possible path.' "'A pained look of helpless empathy "'had clearly worn through the spokesman's earlier facade "'of rousing optimism. "'His concern touched Regis,' as would a starving man crying out for food. Even beyond his feelings for the overly pressured spokesman, Regis was forced to admit the logic of the plan and the absence of other avenues to explore. In the raising of Targos, the wizard had demonstrated his ability to likewise destroy Bryn Shander, and the halfling had little doubt that Kessel would carry out this vile threat. So Regis came to accept his role as their only option. The halfling wasn't easily spurred to action, but when he made up his mind to do something, he usually tried to do it properly. First of all, he began, I must tell you in the strictest of confidence that I do indeed have magical aid. A glimmer of hope returned to Cassius's eyes. He leaned forward, anxious to hear more, but Regis calmed him with an outstretched palm. You must understand, however, the half explained, that I do not— as some tales claim, have the power to pervert what is in a person's heart. I could not convince Kessel to abandon his evil path any more than I could convince spokesman Kemp to make peace with Termalane. He rose from his cushioned chair and paced around the table, his hands clasped behind his back. Cassis watched him in uncertain anticipation, unable to figure out exactly what he was leading up to with his admission and then disclaimer of power. Sometimes, though, I do have a way of making someone view his surroundings from a different perspective, Regis admitted. Like the incident you had referred to when I convinced Kemp that embarking upon a certain preferable course of action would actually help him to achieve his own aspirations. So tell me again, Cassius, all that you have learned about the wizard and his army. Let us see if we might discover a way to make Kessel doubt the very things that he has come to rely upon. The halfling's eloquence stunned the spokesman. Even though he hadn't looked Regis in the eye, he could see the promise of truth in the tales that he'd always presumed to be exaggerated. "'We know from the newsbearers that Kemp has taken command of the remaining forces of the four towns of Mayor Dolden,' Cassius explained. "'Likewise, Jensen Brent and Shermont are poised upon lack Dinisher, and combined with the fleets of Redwaters—' they should prove a powerful force indeed. Kemp has already vowed revenge, and I doubt if any of the other refugees entertain thoughts of surrender or fleeing. "'Where could they go?' Regis muttered. He looked pitifully at Cassius, who had no words of comfort. Cassius had put on a show of confidence and hope for the others at the council, and for the people in the town. But he could not look at Regis now and make hollow promises.' Glenn Souther suddenly burst back into the room. "'The wizard is back on the field!' he cried. "'He's demanding our emissary! The lights on the tower have started again!' The three rushed from the building, Cassius reiterating as much of the pertinent information as he could. Regis silenced him. "'I am prepared,' he assured Cassius. "'I don't know if this outrageous scheme of yours has any chance of working, but you have my vow,' That I'll work hard to carry out the deception. Then they were at the gate. It must work, Cassius said, clapping Regis on the shoulder. We have no other hope. He started to turn away, but Regis had one final question that he needed answered. If I find that Kessel is beyond my power, he asked grimly, what am I to do if the deception fails? Cassius looked around at the thousands of women and children huddled against the chill wind in the city's common grounds. "'If it fails,' he began slowly. "'If Kessel cannot be dissuaded from using the power of the tower against Bryn Shander,' he paused again, if only to delay having to hear himself utter the words, "'You are then under my personal orders to surrender the city.' Cassius turned away and headed for the parapets to witness the critical confrontation. Regis didn't hesitate any longer, for he knew that any pause at this frightening juncture would probably cause him to change his mind and run to find a hiding place in some dark hole in the city. Before he even had the chance to reconsider, he was through the gate and boldly marching down the hill toward the waiting specter of Akar Castle. Kessel had again appeared between two mirrors borne by trolls, standing with arms crossed and one foot tapping impatiently. The evil scowl on his face gave Regis the distinct impression that the wizard, in a fit of uncontrollable rage, would strike him dead before he even reached the bottom of the hill. Yet, the halfling had to keep his eyes focused on Kessel to even continue his approach. The wretched trolls disgusted and revulsed him beyond anything he'd ever encountered, and it took all of his willpower to move anywhere near them. Even from the gate, he could smell the foul odor of their rotting stench. But somehow, he made it to the mirrors and stood facing the evil wizard. Kessel studied the emissary for quite a while. He certainly hadn't expected a halfling to represent the city, and wondered why Cassius hadn't come personally to such an important meeting. "'Do you come before me as the official representative of Bryn Shander "'and all who now reside within her walls?' "'Regis nodded. "'I am Regis of Lonelywood,' he answered. "'A friend to Cassius and former member of the Council of the Ten, "'I have been appointed to speak for the people within the city.' "'Kessel's eyes narrowed in anticipation of his victory.' And do you bear their message of unconditional surrender? Regis shuffled uneasily, purposefully shifting so that the ruby pendant could start into motion on his chest. I desire private counsel with thee, mighty wizard, that we might discuss the terms of the agreement. Kessel's eyes widened. He looked at Cassius upon the wall. I said unconditional, he shrieked. Behind him, the lights of Krishal Tirith began to swirl and grow. "'Now you shall witness the folly of your insolence!' "'Wait!' pleaded Regis, jumping around to regain the wizard's attention. "'There are some things that you should be aware of before all is decided.' Kessel paid little attention to the halfling's ramblings, but the ruby pendant suddenly caught his attention. Even through the protection offered by the distance between his physical body and the window of his image projection, he found the gem fascinating. Regis couldn't resist the urge to smile, though only slightly, when he realized that the eyes of the wizard no longer blinked. I have some information that I am sure you will find valuable, the halfling said quietly. Kessel signaled for him to continue. Not here, Regis whispered there are too many curious ears about. Not all the gathering goblins would be pleased to hear what I have to say. Kessel considered the halfling's words for a moment. He felt curiously subdued for some reason that he could not yet understand. Very well, halfling, he agreed. I shall hear your words. With a flash and a puff of smoke, the wizard was gone. Regis looked back over his shoulder at the people on the wall and nodded. Under telepathic command from within the tower, the trolls shifted the mirrors to catch Regis's reflection. A second flash and puff of smoke, and Regis, too, was gone. On the wall, Cassius returned the halfling's nod, though Regis had already disappeared. The spokesman breathed a bit easier, comforted by the last look Regis had thrown him and by the fact that the sun was setting and Bryn Shander still stood. If his guess, based on the timing of the wizard's actions, was correct... Krishal Tirith drew most of its energy from the light of the sun. It appeared that his plan had brought them at least one more night. Even through his bleary eyes, Drizzt recognized the dark shape that hovered over him. The drow had banged his head when he had been thrown from the scimitar's hilt, and Gwenhyber, his loyal companion, had kept a silent vigil throughout the long hours the drow had remained unconscious, even though the cat had also been battered in the fight with Ertu. Drizzt rolled into a sitting position and tried to reorient himself to his surroundings. At first he thought that dawn had come, but then he realized that the dim sunlight was coming from the west. He had been out for the better part of a day, drained completely, for the scimitar had sapped his vital energy in its battle with the demon. Gwenhyver looked even more haggard. The cat's shoulder hung limp from its collision with the stone wall, and Ertu had torn a deep cut into one of its forelegs. More than injuries, though, fatigue was wearing on the magical beast. It had overstayed the normal limits of its visit to the material plane by many hours. The cord between its home plane and the drowse was only kept intact by the cat's own magical energy, and each passing minute that it remained in this world drew away from its strength. Drizzt stroked the muscled neck tenderly. He understood the sacrifice Gwenebra had made for his sake, and he wished that he could comply with the cat's needs and send it back to its own world but he could not. If the cat returned to its own plane, it would be hours before it would regain the strength required to re-establish a link back to this world, and he needed the cat now. A bit longer, he begged. The faithful beast lay down beside him without any hint of protest. Driz looked upon it with pity and petted the neck once again. How he longed to release the cat from his service. Yet he could not. From what Ertu had told him— the door to Krashal Tirith was invisible only to beings on the material plane. Driz needed the cat's eyes.